This is The Cooldown with me, Phil Rockner, and the always interesting Steph Hansen. With thanks to Triathlete Magazine, let's have a conversation. This is The Cooldown, thanks to Triathlete Magazine, Phil Rockner and Steph Hansen. Once again, this is episode eight. Steph, how are you doing? I'm greatness, Phil. How are you doing? <laughs> have you have you been indulging in Olympics? Mate, I am. I'm going to say it. It's I much prefer the Winter Olympics to the Summer Olympics. This time around, really? I'm, just, I'm just thoroughly enjoying it. Um, I don't know why. Maybe it's the time zone as well. Maybe that helps because it's mm-hmm. the time difference isn't so bad. So I'm getting an opportunity to watch a bit more. I don't know, but. I don't know. It's just cool. It's just yeah. awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, can you spot a triple axle? Like you're you're that into it? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's yep. That's where the car spins around. That's an act on its <laughs> axle three times, right? <laughs> I I I've got no idea what I'm watching. I'm just such a idiot, but it's fun. But it's it's the most addictive thing in that, and we've spoken about this before. You become a couch expert in a matter of seconds. Yeah, but no, at all. Yeah, but especially because I was watching the half pipe uh, last night, where our Aussie came second, um, and watched yes, his and run. Yes, the flying tomato like, crashed out. The flying tomato. Who's no that? tomato. That's um, oh the I, the American fellow who's he's clearly uh, Sean White. Right. Um, yeah. White. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, which no is fairy so tale sad. No. Mm. Um, Oh, heartbreaking. But then the Japanese athlete watching him and I was he's actually flying. That's not jumping off stuff. He's actually flying. (laughs) He's so high up. Yeah, it was insane. But, you know, I could watch every single run and go, wow, that's a gold medal. Wow, that's a gold medal. And not really knowing much (laughs) about it. Um, Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But... I don't know. So, and then some of the commentators make me laugh as well because some of the commentators are too cool for school. N- not in a bad way, but they're just super chill. And I'm like, oh, my mm. God, it's amazing. And they're like, oh, yeah, he just nailed a 1440 triple axle yeah. kickflip. I'm like, oh, my God, that's yeah. amazing. Well, because they've drawn, I mean, generally, I think generally like those sorts of commentators do the world tour stuff and they'd be doing X Games and things like that where they're probably yeah. seeing, you know, dynamic things happening regularly um yeah. but you know here we are we're um uh in in little australia where there's not a lot of snow i want to say and if it is yeah. if you get like a 50 centimeter base the resorts are like yeah snow and then like you go up to you know, big resorts in north america and it's like you know we've got six meter base and you're like yeah okay i'll just shut yeah. up yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> crazy and I, d- I don't remember the last time i other than new york we went to new york for a christmas new year a few years ago but and you'd probably be the same throughout um, the last 10 years. I spent all of our winters overseas chasing the sun and chasing triathlon, which poor, mm. poor me clearly. Yeah. Um, yeah, but, yeah. Yeah. But I've not, I've not been snowboarding for like, it'd be 15 years since I've seen anything that resembled a ski slope. Yeah. No, no. And um, I, I, I did it. I spent a lot of time working outdoors, but I was in the water. So if I, I did a lot of yeah. um, whitewater guiding and things like that when I was younger um, and, and snow was just, and, I, and you know, like we had to do this requirement when I was doing my, some of my courses and they're like, you've got to go and, you know, it'd be in the snow. And I hated it. I just didn't like it. I was just, I was there. For, I remember going up one time and this is, this, this is how wrong it was and building an igloo and living out of an igloo for four days with a bunch of dudes on a mountain and coming back from that, I'm never doing that again. That was garbage. Wow. Wow. Far yeah. out. Igloo. Igloo life's not fun, especially in a whiteout. <laughs> Igloo life is not fun. You just, yeah, there's not right. a lot going on there. Yeah. Um, also, too, big weekend in America with the Super Bowl coming up. And I cannot uh, pass this opportunity by my team, who I've been supporting since the 80s, is playing in the Super Bowl, which is uh, very exciting for me and my uh, my crew here who are all over it. So um, come uh, Super Bowl Sunday, we will be glued to the television um, watching that. And obviously, most of America will be as well. So a big weekend of sport coming up for uh, for our friends in North America. Wow. I mean, I don't know much about the Super Bowl other than halftime acts and yes. um, 
Tom Brady retiring. I know that. What's funny, you know, you talk about um, longevity in a sport. He retired as the number one rated passer in the NFL. Like he's retired like Seinfeld did, completely on top. Um, (laughs) He crashed out of the playoffs thanks to my Rams. Yes, come on. Oh, Um, that's a big win. Got it. Yeah, we're very excited. Beating Tom's fun. Um, (laughs) But he did get us in a... Super Bowl about three years ago where January time or February time you just can't mess with because he's insane. Um, but, yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? 44, I think he was, and clearly the the, the best the sport's ever seen. They, they throw the goat around a lot, um, but no one's got a career like his. It's ridiculous. Um, yeah. But 44 and still on top, it's, it's hard, isn't it? Like, you know, talking to all these pros as we have over the last few weeks, it's, you know, the Crowies and the Maccas and that, and it's like, when do you pull the pin? What makes sense? Oh. Well, Kelly Slater recently, 50, yes. going yeah. around, winning, pipe, winning a winning pipe. Yep. Um, <laughs> there was the uh, the female um, ice skater, not ice skater, um, a speed skater in her fifth Olympics. No wow. one, what was it? No one has ever won five consecutive gold individual medals in summer or winter Olympics. I think that's the right thing. Uh, and she just did, and unfortunately, I just I cannot remember her name because I just don't know the sports. But yep. I was watching that, and I'm like, oh god! And she's not even she's probably like 36 or something. But like, you know, some people say you got to pull the pin at such and such. But mate, look at these people! It's incredible. Yeah, 100%. yeah. you you play until you suck. I think that's what Peyton Manning said. Um, <laughs> And and I think I mean Tom I mean again Tom's certainly didn't suck this year and he's yeah and triathletes have this thing you look at Cam Brown you look at the the oh, the um Greedy Grease Power yeah how well they still race and how competitive they are why would you this age is just age right age is not a is not a right to say hey we're done we're hanging them up and I think you're hundred percent right there we don't need to do that it's um yeah it's crazy but um hey when you're out and about I'll, I can. Um, this is a question without notice. When when did you stop filming, shooting photos, and just in, as we covered triathlon, both of us for decades? Um, when did you become a fan? When you just go, oh, I'm going to fan this one. Um, oh. I'll give you an example. I was out on a motorbike in Kona. <laughs> Screw you, Phil. If you've not ever listened to me, if you know nothing about me, <laughs> you'll know. <laughs> Let me just tell you, my biggest peeve from my entire career working was that I never got a motorbike in Kona and Phil just loves to throw that in there. So uh, happy Saturday to you, Phil. How's about you go get? <laughs> I won't say it. So I can remember um, following Sebastian Kinley on the year that he won. I forget what year it was. Um, and I he was coming back into from Harvey and he was absolutely motoring. He was just putting the foot down and the motor guy says, where do you want to sit? And I just said, just sit here for five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to watch this dude pedal a bike so enormously well. Um, that's completely when I was just like, I'm, I'm going to be a little fan here. Um, and the other one too was watching Pete Jacobs. And I think it was, I want to say it was victory. The year he won he was walking the aid stations as he normally did. Um, uh, we nicknamed him the Albino Tiger because you never know what you're getting with the guy. The guy was just insane. And I remember all the German, because uh, he was racing Andreas Ralliot and all the Germans were like, you know, he's going to get him, he's going to get him. It's going to be Andreas's big year. And Andreas, um, who might have been the nicest guy ever in triathlon in the history yeah. of the sport, um, he was starting to lag. And I remember Macca just riding up to um, – Pete and just giving him what for. And then another guy screaming out to um, Pete Jacobs at a hundred miles an hour, like literally a meter away from him, eat the pain, eat the pain. Every time Pete stopped to walk. (laughs) Eat the pain. (laughs) Eat the pain. I'm not lying. And Pete has footage of this. I think ESPN or one of those NBC shot it, but never broadcast it. And Pete's got the footage because he shows it sometimes when he well when he used to do sort of you know there's public speaking things but this i just stopped watching like stopped filming or doing anything i was doing mm. and just went oh this is awesome <laughs> he's eating the pain it's crazy uh, town brilliant 
Oh gosh, it- I do love those stories. I'm trying yeah. to think of. Um, uh, I almost fell foul too of NBC coverage. I remember sitting on top oh. of Polani Hill with the best spot in the history of the world to shoot photos, and I was right in front of the TV camera. And oh. I thought the NBC guy was going to come over and hit me. He was striding towards me. And I can't forget who it was, but it was a name in Trifon who basically turned around him and told him to back off very quietly. Um, I forget who my saving grace was because I was there with all my kit. I wasn't moving very quickly. Um, but he was coming to hit me. That was that was a, a moment. Um, yeah. But have you, have you fanned someone where you've just gone, I'm just going to watch this because it's cool? Uh I, I'm trying, I mean, there's so many moments because, I mean, I'm out there giving splits to athletes and all athletes, you know, when people don't realize how much work's actually involved when you're out there on a motorbike. I've seen mm. Kona, I've got no idea what that's like, but everywhere else, <laughs> go, every mate. every other race <laughs> on the planet, I got a motorbike. Let it go. <laughs> <laughs> I will never. I'm going to come back no. one year and just like dress up yep. in all pink or something like that. Um, yeah, hire anyway. a motorbike. Yeah, uh, just get out there, get it done. Um, but yeah, so we're out there, photos, videos, uh, giving splits to all the athletes, doing all the things, and I like I still pinch myself at the end of each race. But I I reckon it was the year in Kona where Rini was was it like eighteen minutes, nineteen minutes down off the bike, and I yeah, cannot fourteen. I think the number was fourteen. That yeah, it rings a bell. So far back, and yep. she, uh, my gosh, it, mm. she looked like a one hundred meter sprinter the way she was running. Mm. It was nuts, and watching that woman perfect the art of a marathon off the bike was just the most phenomenal thing I've ever seen, and yep. I. Yeah, I was yelling at her as a friend of and a fan, not a journo. That's for yeah. sure. Um, yeah, because that that was like you if you if you look at any of those photos uh, and seeing her, you know, a meter off the ground, like in full float mode, you would yeah. never predict that she was uh, running off the bike 18, 19 minutes down. Uh, and about to do a, a, an entire marathon, you would honestly think she was doing a five k. It just yeah. w- looked, oh, it looked so good. It was incredible, yeah. absolutely yeah, incredible. She was brilliant. She was a brilliant athlete. Um, running yes. down that day, yeah. yeah. Sometimes on that day, she <laughs> yeah, was yeah, brilliant. Sorry. She was just, you know, completely brilliant running that down. And um, yeah, there was a real again air of um, I'm going to make up a word here, smugicity about some of the Australian <laughs> fans. Because we got it. spoiled, right? We got yeah. spoiled. You know, we had Jacobs and Rini and um, Carf, sorry, Carfrey, um, and and Alexander, and you know, we had all these amazing guys who were just constantly winning. Mm. Um, and these Australian athletes, every year, you'd roll into Kona and you'd be assured that there'd be an Australian somewhere near the podium. Yeah, um, it was got really. The other thing too that I fanned one day was Mike Riley. Can I say that as a someone who's commentated <laughs> a number of races, um, I was the very first Kona I was at. I reckon it was like oh eight or something like that, and we'd just started first off the bike, and it was still was it catching fire yet? It was slowly moving, and I remember standing there going, "Well, if I'm never here again, I'm just going to absorb this." Um, you know, consequently, a decade later, I'm still standing there, but watching him work, uh, and mm. I've, I've said this a couple of times watching him cheer on the athletes, but then as they came up to the finish line, watching him scoot off the finish line so that the entire area is only for athletes. Um, yeah. That's class act. Like that's a class. That's a guy who knows how much it means to people and to get off. Like, you know, some commentators stand there and they make it about them and they stand in the middle of the finish line. You're like, oh my God. That, that's get in the way of the photographer. Oh my yeah, gosh. Like if you're a commentator or anybody who's any doing any commentary around Ironman, your feet do not belong anywhere near that finish line while there's an athlete running down the chute. You Agreed. And you watch, and I've got video of it, and Riley just runs off, literally yeah. runs off the stage as they're coming through because he understands, oh, I love it. Just There's a real um, art to what he does well, but get off the, like commentators, it's not your show. Get off the damn stage. Mate, and so just on, on top of that, when they decide to interview, um, say, first place, uh, male mm-hmm. or female, 
mm-hmm. and completely forget to continue looking to see where second mm-hmm. and third is and second and third oh cross God. the line and no one freaking knows because yep. they're interviewing yep. first place. Just hang back. Like, just wait. It, uh, they're not going yeah. anywhere. They've just finished a freaking Ironman. They're not running away from you. Just <laughs> calm the fuck. Like, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I just um, I just remembered another fangirl moment um, where it must have been the first year Ironman Melbourne, um, Natasha Badman had come to race and I yes. was losing my tiny mind. I was trying to get an interview with her, but there was a lot of backwards and forwards on email and just, we couldn't make it work. So then the first time I saw her in the flesh, which sounds creepy and I don't mean it to, but it was definitely a fangirl (laughs) moment, um, was on the bike and I rolled up to her, completely forgot to take photos. I just talked to her. I was like, hi, Natasha. Oh my God. I was such a dork. But... That's cool. She, mate, she's one of my all times, Natasha mm. Badman. Just, oh, just so incredible. Oh, I love her. Yeah. Yeah. I got to, yeah. um, I got to call that race. So I got to, um, I was the venue announcer at, um, at Ironman Melbourne, the first one. Yeah. And that was that epic battle between Crowey and Brownie too, um, where they ran oh, 239. Yes. Um, and I'm not going to call it Iron Walk because I'm not a loser, but they, <laughs> They had a real battle. That was awesome. Um, and I was commentating with, we're Raymond. And because um, that's how you have to say his name. You're not allowed to say it any other way. Um, and he said to me, he goes, I never, like, and this is what a class act he was. He just said, listen, this is an Australian guy winning. Why don't, oh. you know, why don't you call him across the finish line? Yeah. And I can remember this, you know, that finish line was absolutely jam-packed. It was a real, I mean, you know, it was the very first one. It had been hyped up and there's thousands of people down there. And that was a really cool moment too, getting to call mm. the first Australian winner of the of Ironman Melbourne across. And, um, you know, Wit was brilliant in the way he just, you know, there was no yeah. ego. And that's, we did talk a little bit about just now, you know, the commentators who who think it's all about them. Um, mm. You know, it's not a self-awareness if you're a commentator. Good thing. Good thing. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> um, hey, we're talking to Paula Finlay today, and I'm excited by that because she is. Uh, I just I think she's one of those quiet achievers, mm-hmm. um, and someone who I, I look. I've been I stalked her because um, I stalk all people that we 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 chat to. Her her social media goes gangbusters. She gets a lot of looks and a lot of eyes on what she's doing. She's clearly good at it. She's clearly a good athlete because we know that she's this string of victories. Um, this is a person who's got it all together. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I feel like the key with her sort of engagement with people um, as well as socials is just her authenticity. There's just, mm. there's so much, that's what works for for her and Eric and the Triathlon Life team. Um, it Yeah, and we just enjoy watching Good humans doing good things. Um, with dogs. I, yeah. With dog. Good. That should be the, yeah, so, there's a tagline in that. Good humans there doing is. good things with dogs. Yeah. I mean, I like cats, uh, cats are, uh, for me, I get a good dog image. I'm like, yeah, that's a rocking dog. I'm enjoying yeah. that, you know. So um, she, yes, I'm, I'm again, I, I have questions and hopefully she has some answers. I know she does. Um, <laughs> Weird. <laughs> podcast interview. I know, questions. otherwise it's going to get real short real quickly. Hey, yep. let's jump across and um, and have a chat to uh, to Paula Finlay. Steph, uh, we're just na- uh, nailing another awesome episode on the cool down. Uh, thanks to our friends at Triathlete Magazine. Uh, Paula Finlay needs another one, another one of these amazing athletes who needs zero introduction about how good she is. Uh, Paula, mm-hmm. welcome. Thank you. Nice to chat with you guys. It's... um. It's 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 really early here in in uh, when we're recording. Um, so much so that you know it's very dark. And are you an early riser, or do you find that you just do the pro rollout? Is it obligatory <laughs> to get out early to do everything, or is it more just for you? When does the day start? How do, what does the day look like for you? Yeah, good question. Uh, first of all, thanks for chatting so early your time. I know it makes it hard in Australia to. <laughs> West Coast, whatever the time changes, but um, yeah, thank you, thank you. 
Um, no, I'm not a huge morning person, especially uh, like being witty on a podcast at 6am. I would not be very sharp, but uh, usually we start swimming at eight. So for us, that means like waking up at 630, having a coffee. And um, if I had my choice, I'd start later, but with fitting all of our sessions in and then all the stuff we got to do in between, it's kind of a good time to start. So we actually train a lot with Lindsay Corbin, who's another pro in Bend, and she's an early riser. So we kind of compromise and go, you know, late for her, early for us. <laughs> but also the, the light is great at first first time, uh, uh, first part of the day. And all yeah. the work that you guys do uh, with uh, that triathlon, triathlon life, it's got to mm-hmm. be handy to get up early, you know, that magical light. Surely Eric's onto that. Yeah, yeah. I, we actually go for the sunset light just because that's a little ah. easier to get out the door. And actually in Bend right now, it's really cold in the mornings, like below freezing, and then it warms up quite a lot in the afternoon. So we um, take advantage of the sunset hours around 5 p.m. to get the good footage and good photos and things like that. But you're right, it's super pretty in the morning here. If we can get out to run first thing, we we prefer that over swimming. <laughs> yeah, Fair. it's um the golden hour is is fantastic having spent enough time under the wing of Delhi car um mm-hmm. you know he would he'd be he'd applaud that i would have thought hey mm-hmm. um i looked at through i you know do my usual pre show stalking of um online i had how do you live snowbound explain to me how you live snowbound you know like with so much snow around <laughs> and, you know yeah. here in, in in where we live and in, in where steph and i are if it gets to like eight celsius it's a cold day and we're all crying and you know layering up whereas i yeah do that yeah i do know that because i trained with ellie salthouse a lot and anytime it got below 15 (laughs) celsius it was like don't go outside but um i grew up in the opposite end of the spectrum in canada so for me it was normal to have like a minus 20 celsius day in the winter and uh, that's where i live that's where my parents live that's where i went to school so didn't really have a choice. And so for that reason, I spent a lot of time training indoors and grew up swimming inside and running on the track and just kind of made do with it. And I think a key to winter and survival through those months is just embracing outdoor winter activities if you can, like cross-country skiing or downhill skiing or skating and things that you can do outside. And um, it's not always pleasant, but (laughs) I find that now that I live in Oregon, which does still have winter, but it's not nearly as severe as Canadian winter, it actually doesn't feel that bad. So it's kind of all about your perspective and what you grew up with. And for me, I sort of enjoy having seasons because it sort of naturally allows you to build into the triathlon season without getting too fit too early and having, you know, sunshine all year round. Um, we're actually pretty lucky in Bend right now to be having a lot of warm days, but we have also been skiing a lot and just doing kind of cross-training activities that um, winter allows us to do and then focus more on triathlon as springtime comes. <laughs> so we, we just look at every single winter sport uh, and particularly right now as the Winter Olympics are on mm. and think it's nuts. And uh, to me, I think, how does a triathlete risk going to do those winter sports? Because they all just look hectic and g- crazy. No, that's true. And that's the reason I sort of refrained from skiing as I was growing up because my family's a big skier and I grew up as a young kid skiing. But through the ages of like 15 to 25, I didn't do it just out of fear of injury. And Mm. I've sort of gotten to the point in my life and in my career in triathlon where you do have to kind of enjoy things too. And when we go downhill skiing, we are pretty cautious. And I think there's a risk in anything we do, like riding a bike down a hill is dangerous. But um So I've sort of gone a little bit more on the riskier side, I guess, in terms of just allowing myself to do a little bit of winter activity, even though it has a little bit of risk, but it's really fun. It's, uh, we do this thing called touring where you put skins on your skis and then you walk up the hill and ski down. So the majority of it is like aerobic exercise going up a hill (laughs) with the downhill reward, but you're right. Watching the winter Olympics, like I'm not doing anything nearly as dangerous as that (laughs) with the flips and all that. Do you understand how like I watch the Winter Olympics completely as Steph said, I, I have no idea what I'm watching. Um, yet I'm an expert in five minutes. But um <laughs> so being from Canada is like, you know, you do you understand what curling does what happens in curling? <laughs> I still don't fully understand the rules of curling, but yes. I did grow up Canada's pretty um it's a winter Olympic 
centered country. And I think we're ranked like third right now in the medal count ahead of the U.S. So we have a lot of winter sports going on. And for that reason, I've like watched the Winter Olympics and understand the events and everything. But um, it seems to be like a lot of new stuff coming in, like all of the snowboard, you know, flips and all that. I don't remember seeing that when I was growing up. So X Games is kind of leaking into the Olympics, which is cool. Yeah, I think it's going into both. If so, how does someone who you know lives snowbound um, and and proper snowbounders because Canadians do it very well? Mm-hmm. How do you then find the sport of triathlon? Like, how do you then decide? And second part to that question is it you know what prompts the leap to be a pro? Like, what prompts you to go? You know what, this is for me. Yeah, that's a good question, and I think you see a lot more pro, especially juniors coming out of places like Australia and the U.S. where there's some warmer climates. But um, for me, I grew up swimming, which you can do indoors. We have a really nice facility in Edmonton where I grew up. And my parents were both runners, so I started running track in university. And so those three put together, I mean, we do have a winter, but we also have a really nice summertime and springtime. So (laughs) there are definitely opportunities to, you know, have kind of a triathlon season in Canada. It's just a little bit shorter than it is in Australia or down south. So that's how I got into it was just starting as a single sport athlete and then sort of putting the three together. And in terms of leaping to a professional at it, it was definitely never my ambition to turn professional. And I think that's a term that's really used a lot in the US, but not a lot in Canada, especially when you're in the ITU ranks and racing for the Olympics. Uh, My goal was to win an Olympic medal and not to become a professional triathlete. So Mm -hmm. I thought I'd go to the Olympics and then become a doctor or do something else. So Um, It was sort of a natural progression as I found long course triathlon and sort of put more focus on it and put, uh, you know, finished my degree, but continued to race triathlon and started making money at it that I, I guess I'm now a pro triathlete, but it was definitely never my intention. (laughs) There's still a bit of hesitancy in saying, ah, I guess I'm a pro triathlete. (laughs) No, Um, I'm for sure now, but amongst other things like, you know, making videos and all that. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> um, I wanted to just touch on something you said um, a little bit earlier that you're at a point in your life where you really want to enjoy the th- all the things. And t- to me, it seems really obvious that you are enjoying greater life and triathlon and, you know, all the things. But I think it's fair to say that you've had one of the most up and down, uh, for want of a better term, but roller roller coaster careers being uh, thrown into the spotlight at a very young age um, at the short course racing. I, I think from memory, you ended up appearing on a cereal box or something. Weren't you one of Canada's? Is that right? Am I making that up? Yeah. Yeah. In 2011 yeah. and 12, I had a really good ITU season and that and yeah. qualified for the Olympics in London. And because of my success leading into the Olympics, I was sort of a targeted athlete to win a medal and yeah, put on cereal boxes and sponsors and, <laughs> very new world for me and you know exposed to this kind of media attention that I wasn't used to (laughs) yeah yeah. what's that like though what's that feeling I mean the only reason I get put on a cereal box is a wanted um alert or something like that so what's it like though like when you're seeing seeing this happen I mean and and watching that sort of process unfold and then second part to a question which I seem to be doing well this morning um you know, what's that like? What physically, what do you have to go and do? Yeah, for me, it was, you know, if I ex- had experienced that now as a 32 year old versus a 20 year old, I think it would have been a very different experience. And um, I just have a lot more like knowledge of the sport now and how to deal with setbacks that I didn't have that skill set back when I was younger. And I was just used to winning. Like I grew up as a teenager and started triathlon with pretty quick success and didn't have a lot of experience with injuries or losing or not having a good race. And so when those things started to happen to me, which naturally does when you're a pro triathlete or racing at at an elite level, um, it's really, really challenging. And for me, it was a long time ago. So I'm trying to like even kind of remember how I felt, but um, the media doesn't see what's happening behind the doors. And if I did have a pretty serious injury at the time, but I was still being promoted as someone who could win a medal. So I just had to continue believing that I could still win a medal. And even though I had these setbacks and I wasn't running as much, um, I kind of had to put on a fake face and be like, yeah, I'm training super well. Can't wait for the Olympics. 
And it's, it's really interesting almost seeing the parallel, I mean, to a much smaller degree of people like Michaela Schifrin in the Winter Olympics and Simone Biles in the Summer Olympics and all this pressure that's put on them. But you don't really know what's happening behind the scenes. And it is an enormous amount of pressure for young athletes to go into an event with all eyes on them and having an expectation that you have to live up to. So that was that was really challenging, but like a really good learning experience early in my career. So, so these days, what do you attribute to it, it really enjoying um, your career as a pro triathlete? Um, I think I've... I went through very like serious times where I was, um, I mean, you kind of have to when you're training for an Olympic games and want to win a medal, like that's your whole life and you don't go on family vacations as much and you don't see your friends as often you move away from home. And, um, yeah, not a lot of extracurricular sort of quote unquote fun things, although the lifestyle itself is very fun. But, um, now that I'm 32 and I have, a dog and I have Eric and we have a house and we live somewhere that we love and we have friends that we like doing things with. Like it's, it's a little bit more of a relaxed approach. And I think it's not a compromise though. I think that to be a good athlete, you kind of have to have some balance and escape from just triathlon all the time. So I think I've struck that balance a little balance a little better now that I'm older. And for that reason, I'm staying healthier and racing better and yes I still get injured and still have setbacks but they're definitely not as drastic and through the setbacks I can sort of keep my head high and see the other end of the tunnel versus when I was younger it was like the end of the world if something wasn't going right so just like maturing a little bit I guess and realizing it's okay to go skiing once in a while (laughs) I guess learn that resilience like you know faced with sort of injuries and you know that sort of solitude because it's not a team sport obviously um and, you know, when you see hear about professional um, team players getting injured, you know, they, the team rallies around them. And, and, you know, I guess you have that in a, in a microcosm with a smaller group of people around you. But how hard is it to, to make those comebacks and to have that resilience? Um, it's a very different uh, experience when you're racing ITU and have a federation support behind you versus when you're doing long course and you're a little bit more of a lone wolf. And both have their pluses and minuses. Like when I was heading into the Olympics in London, I was very well funded and supported by Triathlon Canada because I was like a medal target. So I had all the support I needed, but that was almost too overwhelming for me to, everyone wanted to help me and everyone was giving me advice. And I was Mm -hmm. this 20 year old trying to navigate, like, who do I listen to? And do I even listen to myself sometimes? Um, Versus now when I'm injured, I have a pretty small, like very selected group of people that are helping me like one physio and my coach and Eric and my parents and I find that is a little bit of an easier more manageable way to have a support team and it's definitely not a team sport but it is in a lot of ways because I couldn't do it alone so um, yeah that was another example of being 20 and just being thrown into this world that a lot of athletes don't experience till they're much later in their career like having all this support and everything so it's good and bad, but um, really hard to manage when you're a teenager. <laughs> mm, I can imagine. So, so what what is the big goal for you? Um, you know, Olympics was a big goal, um, mm-hmm. and you've been very su- successful over the half distance. I mean, Challenge Daytona was a a brilliant example of that. Um, what's the big goal for Paula? Um, I still see myself having success at the half distance and sort of like untapped potential through a lot of races. Um, I did have a really good race in Daytona, but it was kind of a weird year where no one had really raced. Mm. And it was a course that really suited me, especially the training I'd done leading into it, which was mostly indoors. <laughs> but um, I still do have goals of, you know, being on the podium at a world championship and winning as many 70.3s as I can. And for me, the outcome is really dictated by just staying healthy and training. And that was the biggest thing leading into Daytona was I had a really uninterrupted year of running and I didn't get injured a single time and I didn't do anything special. I didn't do any like crazy shot sessions or huge weeks of training. It was just consistency. So for me, that brought me confidence knowing that if I can just string together another good year of training, I can have good races like that and be one of the best in the world. So that was really nice to have that 
kind of realization after my success in short course 10 years ago to come back and say, okay, I'm still a good athlete. If I can just stay healthy, I can be the best in the world at this potentially. So um, that's my goal. And in terms of like moving up to Ironman, I would like to eventually, not this year, maybe next year, but um, for now, I'm just really liking the shorter half distance and it's continuing to evolve and get faster with everyone stepping up from ITU. So yeah. <laughs> lots of challenges. Yeah. Um, just talking about the ITU and, and, and Olympics, um, the, the grind of actually qualifying for an Olympics, um, do you see that as as off-putting for anybody who's sort of looking at the two worlds and they're going, okay, I can be dictated to more or less by a federation or I can just, you know, live my own athletic life as it were, make my own decisions about where and what I'm racing. Um, yeah. Do you find that that's going to become a factor in people's decision-making as younger pros come through or is do you still think it's the allure of the Olympics that holds people? Yeah, for sure. That's ultimately the reason I left ITU is because of the politics and team selection and discretion and everything. And it wasn't always black and white and clear cut how to qualify for a team or why someone got put on a team and one someone didn't. And for my personal experience qualifying for London, I kind of just fell onto that team. Like I didn't really have that as a target to qualify. I just kind of blasted onto the scene in 2010 and 11 and was named to the Olympic team a year in advance of the Olympics. So that wasn't stressful for me, but then coming back in 2016 and trying to qualify turned very political and kind of just ruined my love for the sport overall, I think. So it's kind of like if you, if an athlete wants to go to the Olympic Games, unfortunately, that's the only path is to, you know, listen to the federation and <laughs> go down that pathway. But I must say it's like a huge relief to have a bit more control over my own career. And once I stepped out of that world and was able to pick my own race schedule and didn't have to, you know, submit everything to a federation and have my sort of like self-worth almost attached to what they thought of me, like it's this kind mm -hmm. of toxic world that you can get into uh, sometimes. Um, so very happy on the other end of it to be out of it. However, like I did go through a lot of phases of my career where the Federation was extremely supportive and it's kind of like they're all in when you're doing well. And then as soon as you're not, you don't see any help at all. So it's very much like all or nothing with federations I find. And it was, um, thankfully I didn't quit the sport because of it, but I know a lot of athletes that have. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, that Not must be hard itself, isn't it? That this whole, like, the whole idea of discretionary picks for someone who's lived their life in in black and white, and I, and I say that because athletes are so focused on scoreboards, and and triathletes know what a you know what a stopwatch is. Um, mm -hmm. How hard is it though that to like as they're explaining discretionary, you know, even in reading criteria, and it, it must be incredibly frustrating. Yeah, there are some ways or there were some ways in 2016 to qualify automatically but when no women did it all became discretion and that's when you get into like well I beat this person in this race I should go and it's like yeah. I don't know everyone thinks they deserve to be on the team so it's not a fun position for the high performance director to be in or the coaches to be in or whoever's making the picks but you know someone's always going to be unhappy with the outcome and unfortunately in 2016 that was me that was left off the team so that's where I had to kind of make a decision. Like, do I want to keep doing this for another four years and dedicate my life to, you know, traveling the world cup circuit to make, get enough points to prove that I'm good enough to be on this team? Or do I want to kind of step in the other direction that we're really fortunate as triathletes to have almost this whole other outlet of racing in half distance that we can jump to a lot of Olympic sports don't have that. So um, I just, you know, tried my first couple in 2017 and really loved them. So decided to fully move over and I do miss ITU in a lot of ways and watch longingly at some of the races but I don't think I made the wrong decision I'm also really happy with racing long distance especially with the emergence of the PTO and all the support that they give for long distance athletes yeah you seem to be doing okay at it um <laughs> just, sorry just the last one on that is it, it the other thing too is that if you've got a like a wealth of um amazing athletes like look I think of the the British team and 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 their women's team which is always fully loaded um yeah. you know like in standing I just think standing behind you know four or five other women as you're trying to you know push your way through and you're clearly could make the 
Olympic team of 17,000 other countries. That's also got to be rough. <laughs> For sure. I don't have that experience personally. The Canadian team is good, but never as deep as someone, you know, like the Great Britain team or the Australian team or US team. So I, um, I totally understand, can understand that though. Like some of the best athletes in the world were, le- were left off the US Olympic team and that whole thing is frustrating, but it's just kind of the way the Olympics work is just there's like representation from every country. So you can only have so many people per country and that sometimes leaves out the best people. So kind of unfortunate, but part of the sport. (laughs) can be so, so brutal. Uh, And just particularly looking at the Winter Olympics at the moment in terms of discretion and judging and so forth, just Mm -hmm. watching. and, And we obviously we can sit on the couch and judge and think the 1080 backflip kick side whatever it is in snowboarding <laughs> was incredible but they some judges like meh and it completely it just it blows my mind like I I really struggle with that kind of sport I appreciate it but just give me a finishing line or or, or like a, a net so we know what the actual score is you know um yeah, yeah. the judging side of it wow like, I, imagine- I like being in a sport where it's like the first one across the line yeah. wins. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I don't do well with subjectivity. I, I couldn't, the diving and even in the Summer Olympics and the diving, I just sit there and go, that was awesome. And some judges go, no, it's garbage. I, that yeah. Was it, it looks like they're trying to make some of it a little more subjective. Like the figure skating has a scoreboard like as they're skating, which is kind of cool. So oh. it's still judged, but I think there's a little bit more transparency um, across some of these sports. But That's- I don't I don't really know. This is just from me watching. <laughs> Um, are you calm in the, are you calm race morning? Are you a calm person or are you um prior to a race, are you jittery Joe? What do you, what what's your demeanor like on race morning? Yeah, very nervous. Um I've always been like that ever since I started racing, no matter what sport. And I don't think it's a bad thing. I think it means that you really care about it and it's uh kind of fuels me and as soon as the gun goes off, all those nerves go away, but I, the the days and the hours leading into a race are definitely not my favorite part of the sport. <laughs> so how, <laughs> do you, how do you quiet your mind in the mornings? So in those race mornings, what do you do to, to quiet the mind? Um, I really find that race morning, the process of just getting ready for the race takes my mind off of what's coming and just doing like, you know, waking up, having breakfast, getting to the course. And often it's like 5 a.m. So you don't really have time to think about it. Whereas the day before when you're kind of waiting in the hotel room, I find it the most agonizing. And to take my mind off it, I'll just watch shows or whatever. I have Eric there usually. So, um, but just like thinking about the process and having a clear outline of what you do every morning before a race can kind of take the nerves away. It's like familiarity. And the more races I do in a year, the less anxious and nervous I'll get because it becomes so familiar. There's a there's a beautiful photo of you shot by Delhi Car that it just it always pops up in my mind whenever uh, I speak to you or, or I think about you and he's taken a photo of you at one of the World Triathlon Series races and it's at the start of the race you're in swim cap but you've got a towel wrapped around you um, mm-hmm. and it I don't know if you remember it but it's kind of yeah, covering yeah. yeah covering half your face and that just listening to you talk about it now that to me summarizes you at the race start like I can almost feel you trying to just breathe through it you know because all you can see is your eyes right (laughs) no that is cool Deli is so amazing at capturing oh he's not that good come on he's just (laughs) what I do miss about you know in today's day and age there's like five photographers at every race they're all amazing but they're all putting out albums of like 300 photos but I kind of miss the 2010 era where Delhi would just pick his like 20 best images and put them on the ITV website and they were all so special. So it was kind of like a a very different age, obviously, when photos and video weren't as big. But um, I still look back at his photos of me racing in 2010 and think like, wow, these were the best photos ever of me racing. Yeah, I mean, Steph can attest to this too. We'd be out shooting a race and... I, I did, I used to shoot what I used to call just, you know, meat and potato photos for the website that I, that I ran and you'd see Dally up a tree or he'd be lying in a gutter or something like that as you yeah. would on a motorbike, you'd be like, what's he doing? And then you see the after shot and you're like, oh, okay, I get it. Yeah. It was worth yeah. it. It's 
Yeah, it reminds like me of Tommy the race a little bit. Cow or through it through a cow's, you know, um, paddock. Yeah. Or You're like, dude, that's just sick. You know, like he's a frustrating man, Deli. Um, <laughs> I must say, um, having done my um, my stalking this week. Your setup for uh, the socials, as it were, um, is is your games on point. I, I I must say I have a little group of athletes who I factor in as, you know, really good at what they do, and I'm I'm gonna slide you into that group because um, <laughs> your social media setup is very sharp. Oh, thank you. That means a lot. It's honestly I can credit Eric for most of it. My my partner Eric Lagerstrom. He's also a pro triathlete, but very artistic and enjoys mm. photo video all of that so it's definitely not me although I do enjoy the artistic side of it like taking photos and editing them and making a story and all of that so um it's definitely part of the job now as a pro triathlete and thankfully Eric and I enjoy it so it can work to our advantage <laughs> but I appreciate that you um think it's good so thanks That's for saying that. I, I do I'm, I'm a little bit like you I'm I like a photo, like I'm, I still am old, I'm an old man now, but I like the f- whole idea of, you know, that photography and that sort of capturing something in that split second, mm-hmm. um, especially just out, like whether it's be biking and things like that. And there's, you know, obviously product shots and things like that, that you have to do, but um, you guys do a really nice job of being authentic at it. Um, yeah. We try not to make our posts or our pictures too, you know, promotional, I guess. And yeah. A lot of the time we're out using the products of companies that sponsor us so they naturally show up in all of our photos so i think that's a lot more authentic way as you said to to show how we use everything and we genuinely are using like our bikes every day or our watches every day or whoever it is so um that is exposure that just happens (laughs) which is cool and through taking like creative artistic photos and showing them in the vlog and our videos and stuff like that um I think it's a cool way to like, you know, give the brands some awareness, but also be artistic on our end and take cool photos. I want you to throw a dog into the mix. I mean, <laughs> that, that's, that's the winning combination, right? Oh, I know. It's, it's kind of ridiculous. Like the amount I post about Flynn, but it's not. he is so funny. And he like, I, it's probably, if I ever have a kid, it's going to be the same, you know, it's like everything they do, you think is the cutest thing ever. <laughs> you have to it show is. People. It absolutely is. Yeah, I'm, I'm so still waiting like, for people to revoke my Instagram <laughs> yeah. license or something. I'm like, maybe I shouldn't post about Flynn in every single post. But, um, <laughs> I think Do people you know like was, it. Was, if they don't, um, then whatever. Exactly. <laughs> I saw a post about, was it um, someone was saying, dogs not deep. You know, if we're talking about social media, it's um, people prefer dogs. Not like you can make you know make some amazing quote you think's awesome, put up there, and you know no one looks at it. But you put a photo of a dog, and yeah. all of a sudden it's huge. I mean, it's just right. tapping into what people want. People want dogs. Totally. Yeah, I mean, he's like he brings a lot to Eric and I in terms of like happiness, and we take him on runs, and we have a Strava account for him, and it's just like it's entertaining for us and part of the sport when you train so much is just keeping it lighthearted and having fun with it. So <laughs> Flynn helps with that. Just on that sidebar, did you, um, cause I actually remember uh, interviewing you on our podcast just before you were going to get a dog. I think you were in the, yeah. yeah. Did you choose that breed of dog so that he could be doing a lot of running with you? I guess, particularly in the snow as well. Yeah, we kind of had this conversation a few days ago with a friend, like, would you rather have a dog that has to come running with you or a dog that you can just come back to and just chill all day, like a bulldog or something? Yeah. <laughs> and we're a bit torn because when we we love taking Flynn for runs and he can do about 10 kilometers when it's not too hot and it's very fun for us. But on the flip side, if we have an actual workout to do, we have to come back from our workout and then exercise the dog. So it's like this whole other <laughs> hour of walking. So I don't know. It's kind of, I'm torn, but we did pick an active breed on purpose. We, we thought it would be fun to be able to run with the dog. And on the flip side though, he's like totally psycho and he expects <laughs> in a, a run every morning now. So that's like our priority when we, when we wake up is exercising the dog. <laughs> what sort of dog is he, Paula? Um, he's a German wire hair pointer, which is kind of unusual, but like a hunting breed, basically. So lots of uh, okay, yeah, yeah. I mean that's the thing too. You want you want a dog that you can, I guess, have an active lifestyle with. But 
I, I, I have a border collie and um, yeah, he's, he's really loose. Um, <laughs> Yeah, don't, don't you have one too, Steph? Yeah. Yeah, those are yeah. a lot he's, of energy. He's finally starting to slow down now and he's 13. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Flynn's two and I'm like, maybe he'll slow down when he's five, but nope. probably not. <laughs> no, definitely not. <laughs> yeah. So um, I did notice too, um, a lot of engagement with your, with your um, and we asked this of Heather Jackson, who I know you spent time with, and she did credit mm-hmm. you a lot with helping her and Waddy. Um, continue their rise to um international stardom um, <laughs> oh, um, this very complimentary. um do you, are you and i asked this of heather and I, and I kind of this is just you know a sidebar are you sort of really driven by engagement and and like you know and analytics or do you watch that side of it or is it more just you know what we put we post stuff and if it works it works otherwise we keep moving yeah i don't really care too much about instagram analytics and likes and everything um, although it's nice to see that a post is popular and like you kind of learn the trends of which posts get more likes and everything. But for us, our YouTube channel, it is a little bit linked to views and like the the pennies that you know, YouTube gives you for videos and ads and things like that um, are related to how many views you get. So we pay closer attention to it with the videos versus our Instagram. And um, I do find that like the more natural the post is, the more likes it'll get or the more engagement it'll get. Um, but I don't necessarily try to play the game of like trying to get as many followers or likes as I can with hashtags and all that. Um, mm-hmm. I try to keep it as supernatural as possible. And it's kind of just grown authentically that way versus in a forced way, which for us is a lot more fun than trying to play the followers game. <laughs> yeah. I like yeah. that. Um, you mentioned the PTO earlier um, and about what they're up to when they first rebooted I think a couple of years ago, um, did you like many of us do another eye roll and, you know, it's like, Oh, here they come again. What, you know, what shenanigans are they bringing this time? Because to me, they'd been a pretty hard fail the last few times they got themselves together. Um, were you surprised by what they've been up to? Um, yeah, I'm actually on the athlete board. So I started that role a few years ago. So I've been Mm -hmm. a little bit more, um, closely involved than, than some other athletes, but um, I guess it didn't like fully surprise me when they, when they came out and started having like more success and prominence a few years ago. Um, I think any sort of organization like this takes a while to get going and to be established and to have credibility. And the PTO started that, um, in 2020 during a pandemic and sort of like showed their support right away for athletes and, none of us were racing, but they still supported us regardless. So after that happened and we were actually seeing like money come into our bank accounts, I was like, yeah. wow, this is a real thing. And, and then just backed by the Daytona PTO championships being a really big event and everything that the PTO has done, even from a social media side of things, like, you know, the, the photos that they take and sharing our own, um, the athletes, social media. And I just think they've done a lot of good for bringing awareness to athletes. And I personally am very excited for the PTO tour because the first stop is in Edmonton, which is where I was born and grew up. So that'll be a really cool event. And I think it's definitely still, you know, they're like learning things and it's still a growing company and everything. But um, I think everything they've done so far has been really positive for, especially for the pro athletes. Yeah, it seems... um... I think to getting the right people on board, I think as you mm-hmm. know, like a lot more athlete involvement, I think that, you know, the appointment of um, Sam Renouf as the, you know, so the CEO and the yeah. big chair, um, yeah. having a history in the sport, you know, someone who understand, understands it like he does. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's a winning combination. But um, I think also, as you're right, that the idea that the PTO now is starting to move um, and support athletes through the pandemic and, and then now the world tour, which I think is a huge step forward. Um, yeah we were talking again across the last eight episodes in this podcast is, you know, that sort of quantum shift in triathlon. It's, you know, there are options now, like we talk super league or you talk, you know, there's a Collins cup, there's um, the tour that's been announced, you know, there's a, a whole lot of um, good challenge races, et cetera. Um, but um, I think there's a lot of good options, isn't there now for, for a, a pro to find racing um, yeah, and to actually, yeah, and actually, and actually find their feet. So it, it, there's a lot more pathways. 
Yeah, I think it's um, it's almost become more feasible to sustain yourself as a pro triathlete and make a living, especially at the pointier end. But I think the nice thing about the PTO series is that that will attract the top 30 or 40 ranked athletes, and then they might not go to a lower level Ironman race. So, you know, B level pros can win those and make a prize money, you know, check and maybe get sponsors. So it sort of like creates this trickle down effect where having, you know, a lot of support at the top end and the PTO does support a lot. No, there is some depth to the amount of money they're giving athletes, but I think, um, you know, take Lionel and Jan and they go to the Edmonton PTO tour and there's another race that weekend where maybe someone who's a newer pro can win. So that's another nice side of it is just like more racing opportunities that'll, you know, spread out the <laughs> the talent a little more so everyone can have success and get into the sport and make a living and then also stay in the sport. Like people that are racing ITU can continue to race long distance because of the PTO and the support they're offering. Yeah. Is it, um, I spoke to, I reckon I would have spoken to Chris McCormick about this at some point. Um, are there too many, pro, like, is it too easy to be a pro? Is it too, are there too many pros? I mean, in, in <laughs> I mean, do you know what I mean? Like, like I know, you know, some Aussie pros who keep getting or were getting re-registered pretty much without even racing, et cetera. Yeah. Like, is it, and I guess like, I, I you know, I'd, I'd love to be a, you know, pro golfer, but chances of that are happening a, a, a zero eight because I don't play golf, but yeah. because I'm not going to get in there. Do you know what I'm saying? Is it too easy or you know, is it got to be like, you know, the top 100 pros in the world get to race these races? Well, that's what the PTO tour is doing is capping it at 40 or whatever the top ranked mm. athletes are. And it per- perhaps it's too easy to get a, you know, your pro license, but I don't think it really impacts the races negatively to have sort of newer pros or slower pros in the field, um, except for at a race like Daytona where you're doing laps and it just gets really congested. But <laughs> In most Ironman events or challenge events or PTO, whatever events, um, it doesn't really impact anything. And I think it's nice for someone who is like a newer pro and just getting, trying to get faster to start with the pro field and kind of have that awareness of what it's like to race the best in the world. So um, I don't really have a strong opinion on it either way. I think the people that are not winning races or in the top 10 of races still a lot of them have other jobs or they're coaching or they're doing something else to support themselves financially um so if they want to race in the pro field and they've qualified fairly and earned it then i don't think there's anything wrong with that necessarily i uh because we'll obviously have to wrap this up uh and let you go i'm sure there's a dog that needs to be run that end of this <laughs> actually <laughs> Lindsay corbin texted me at 7 a.m today and said i'm going to the park with chimmy i'll i'll come pick up Flynn. So we just like threw Flynn out the door and Lindsay took him, which is amazing. Oh my gosh, you're having play dates with your dog. Yeah, <laughs> like our children. Best. Um, but I can't, I just wanted to kind of circle back because, and I know I probably seem to harp on about it, but I really feel like the sport nearly lost you. Um, you nearly packed it up with for very good reason. Uh, but you came back and you've come back successfully which makes it sound easy and I know it wasn't. Um, and But you've just mentioned Lindsay Corbin and we've spoken about Heather Jackson and I feel like you've really, you've really, um, I guess, brought that circle in close to you and you've found your trusted team. And I'm not just talking about coach and physio and, and Eric. It's the other women, I guess, in the sport um, as well who you've kind of gravitated towards. Um, Do you feel like they really have played a big role, whether they know it or not, in really helping you settle into this, I guess, new lifestyle and the second chapter of your career? Yeah, absolutely. And I think just realizing like Lindsay's six or seven years older than me, same with Heather, and they're still racing professionally. So Mm. why can't I do that? You know, it just makes it feel like a more realistic, sustainable kind of job, quote unquote, or is the, I grew up thinking, oh, I want to do this for 10 years and then become a doctor or a physio or do something yeah. more conventional. So it is really cool to have these friends of mine now who I used to kind of look up to in the sport because they raced Ironman while I was racing ITU and um, now to be kind of like their peers and friends and we're training together a lot and 
you know, we get each other out the door a lot of days when it's difficult to train. So I think that's the advantage of a lot of these groups, like the ITU training groups, they have each other to get out the door every day. Um, and I have Eric, but having someone like Lindsay or Heather to meet up for runs, meet up for rides, and then like push each other when we're tired is <laughs> really critical and important just having their friendship. So, um, mm. Yeah, it is definitely a big part of it and also a reason that we decided to move to Bend because we knew there was a nice little group of triathletes here. Not the same as like Boulder, but still uh, mm. a couple people to train with. So, yeah. Well, um, we've really enjoyed the last 40 uh, odd minutes. Jeez, it's flown. Um, <laughs> always does. Um, thanks so much for being a part of us. Um, that Triathlon Life podcast before we let you go, give you, kind of plug it, give yourself a little plug. Um, clearly that's going very nicely. Are you enjoying that side? Yeah. So we have a, I won't go on too long about this, but our friend Nick Goldston, he's like a musician composer, but also an amateur triathlete and one of our best friends. And he's been kind of pushing us to give tr podcasting a try. And I was always reluctant, like oh, we're doing so much already, but we basically just chat with him for 45 minutes like you guys are doing with me right now. And Nick does all the editing, all the sound quality on his end. And it's had like a very surprising um, amount of success so far. So because of that, we think it's fun. We're going to continue every week until we get tired of it. But <laughs> it's really like a cool other platform besides video or Instagram there. You can really like dive deep into questions like we just did mm -hmm. here and answer answer people when they, you know, have a question that might not be appropriate to answer on another platform. So we think it's super fun. And as long as people keep listening, we'll keep doing them. So <laughs> awesome. Love keep that. doing it. Um, <laughs> um, it sounds great. Um, we appreciate you being uh, part of the cool down podcast um, and look forward to uh, well, what is going to be no doubt, a, you know, a, a fun 22 watching you uh, go around the world very quickly. Thanks for joining us. Yeah. Thank you so much. Nice chatting with you guys. Thanks for listening to The Cooldown. Make sure to check out All in the World of Triathlon with Triathlete Magazine.